This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily, and this is the week of July 4th through 8th, 2022, uh, with my Biolic hosting. And uh, before we get into the Jeopardy stuff, how are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I'm doing uh, pretty well. Uh, COVID has decided to hang around our house. Uh, my kids, mm. kids tested positive, but they're feeling fine. And in happier news, my older daughter learned to ride a bike this week without Yay. training wheels. And she crushed it. Nice. Congratulations. Yes. So now I can say put on your helmet and go ride around so I don't have to parent anymore. Every parent's <laughs> That's dream. how that works. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, but yeah, it's awesome. It was like, it was one of those like, oh. yeah, <laughs> moments. So mm-hmm. uh, how are you doing? Um, I am doing all, all right-ish. Uh, as far as I know, COVID hasn't hit our house, but my my, uh, my older child is about as sick as I've ever seen him with. We have a positive strep result at this point, but we also have a bunch of symptoms that are not characteristic of strep. And so we're wondering if it's more than one thing. It, it's a whole mess. You need Dr. House. Yes. I was, I was actually thinking that <laughs> earlier today. <laughs> Except that Dr. House doesn't usually deal with, you know, children who have, like, uh, a positive strep swab and a fever and a headache, but also a bad cough and pink eye. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Usually he's like, his talents are devoted to things that are, like, a little bit more life-threatening. But, but yeah, it it wouldn't hurt to get Dr. House uh, in here, you know, but, but other than that, um, I'm, I'm doing all right. I've been, I've been reading a lot. I've been trying to learn a little bit of Chinese on Duolingo. Yeah, so I'm doing okay. Um, But, you know, here's hoping everyone in our households is healthy at this time next week. Amen. Yeah. So, hey, let's get into the episodes. On Monday, July 4th, we had the contestants Andy Husky, an educator from Geneva, New York, Yangshen Wang, a public defender from Los Angeles, California, and Eleanor Dixon, a freelance technical editor from Vero Beach, Florida, whose one-day cash winnings total $20,818. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, orchestral instruments, name the automaker, TV, silent consonant words, tunnels, and by George. I mean, the musical instrument category was, was nice to me. That was yeah. pretty easy, pretty gettable. Yeah, the $1,000 level of uh, which instrument has many strings and the Cs are red and the Fs are black as a visual aid. I was like, this This feels, it's just, a, yeah, it just all felt kind of on the easy side. Yeah. Um, but maybe especially so if you're a music teacher. Yeah. Did, did Maya be all like, pronounce the name of the composer at the $400 level correctly? I did not go back to listen, but it definitely sounded weird. I noticed that. It's Dvorak. And I yeah, don't... Yeah, I, I didn't really hear a J-ish. I, like that, that J. Yeah, it was... It, yeah. I, you know, I had the same... the same wonderment. 
I, yeah. I noticed. <laughs> but I don't remember exactly how it was weird. I just remember being like, that wasn't quite it. That's okay. Yeah. He's not around to correct us. Mm-hmm. Contestants can, can, you know, miss all kinds of things for all kinds of reasons. But that $400 level of silent consonant words, her mm-hmm. unrequited love for Narcissus reverberates through mythology. Yangshen tried who is Aphrodite, I think zeroing in on uh, love. Yeah. And that was not correct. Nobody tried it. Turned into a t- triple stumper. Um, echo. And they were hinting at it with reverberates. Yeah. Which I thought was a fun clue. I thought that was a fun clue. I I guess the H is silent. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that saying that that's a silent consonant word. Yeah, because CH is really the, I don't know, digraph? Is it a digraph? Yeah, I get, yeah I, you would know better than I would. But yeah, I, mm, I mean, I yeah. guess if you're saying, well, the C is the thing that makes the C sound and the H is just there for show all right Mm -hmm. i don't know i i don't i don't buy it quite so much yeah all right uh, daily double number one is in the tv category at the 800 dollars level pick number eight and young shen finds it Uh, he is at 1000 eleanor is at 200 andy is at 1000 and he wagers 1000 and gets the clue the greenlanders and the last daughter of Uppsala are episodes of the drama called these people valhalla and he gets it right with What Are Vikings? I've heard that's a good show. I've never watched it, though. I haven't watched it either. Um, I did watch a little bit of Our Flag Means Death, which was at the $600 level Ooh, how recently. Is that? It's, uh, it's fun. It's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. It's a, it's a good show, I think, so far. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not immersed enough to feel like I can really like, give, a, give a conclusion. But okay. so far, so good. It's on my list. It, it People that I respect have very much enjoyed it. So uh, it's not especially heavy. Oh, that's which good. I know. <laughs> that's helpful. <laughs> which I know is a thing for you right now. Yes. Uh, so that's good. That's good. That'll 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 play with us well. Yep. Um, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Eleanor is at twenty six hundred. Young Shen is up to sixty six hundred, and Andy is at forty four hundred. We get the double Jeopardy categories: non-orchestral instruments. Starts with AU. AU in quotation marks. It's kind of a funny story, medical adjectives, old movies, and the power of the doge. As in the the Venetian doge, not the um not the meme. Not the not the Shiba Inu meme. Yeah. We had was this the only one of these we had a reversal um where Mayam ruled something incorrect. Oh, that's right. And then they reviewed the tape and found that uh, it was a pronunciation problem that the that that was corrected just barely in time, mm-hmm. and she ruled it wrong as you know as being too late. And then they they reviewed the tape and said it was it was in time. Um, it was uh, the two thousand dollar level of medical adjectives. Yeah, so um, it was from a Latin word for to cloak. It's the type of care given to seriously ill patients to provide comfort without curing. Um, Yang Shen tried what is hospice. Andy said, what is palliative, palliative, and uh, Mayam ruled her incorrect because she was, she thought too late with the correction to palliative, um, but then they, then they turned it around. I feel like there was maybe another similar one like that, but I'm not sure. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting mixed up. Maybe. Daily Double number two is in that same medical adjectives category at the $1,600 level, and Andy finds it at the 17th pick. 
Uh, she has 13,200 to Eleanor's 4,200 and Yangshen's 11,000. She wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. It can refer to a procedure that doesn't penetrate the body or to disease that doesn't encroach into healthy cells. Uh, she tries what is superficial but non-invasive is the response they're looking for here. Yeah. And then daily double number three is pick number 28. It's in the non-orchestral instruments at the $1,600 level. Uh, and Eleanor finds this one. So each of them found one. It's nice. She's at 7,800. Young Shen is at uh, 11,800. Andy's at 12,200. And she wagers 2016. Uh, I think I saw on Twitter or something that, like, she's a Vanderbilt fan or Villanova fan or something. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't know. Um, but those years have something to do with that. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm stretching here. Uh, she gets a clue. Change one letter in Google's mobile phone operating system to get this type of non-liquid barometer. And, oof, I thought this was a tricky one. Uh, she guesses what is thermometer. That's not correct. It's aneroid. A-N-E-R-O-I-D instead of android. Hmm. I would not have figured that out no i would not have gotten to aneroid (laughs) yeah so at the end of the double jeopardy round andy's in the lead with twelve thousand two hundred. young shen has eleven thousand eight hundred. eleanor is at 5784 still in still in contention uh and we have the final jeopardy category the eastern u.s and the clue at its peak this state had six seats in the house of representatives since the 1930s it has had just one Eleanor tried what is Rhode Island. It's not a bad guess. Uh, she wagered thirty-seven ninety-nine, and uh, Rhode Island is incorrect, so she drops down to nineteen eighty-five. Maybe another important day. I don't that know. May, yeah, could be. Uh, Young Shen has what is Vermont. That is the correct response, uh, and he's wagered eleven thousand, bringing him up to twenty-two thousand eight hundred. Is that too big of a wager for this situation? I mean, it works out. Yeah. But. It's hard to know with Eleanor behind. So, yeah, Eleanor has a little more than half his total, but like a pretty small wager here is probably going to be the better move, I think, unless there's something I'm missing. But anyway, it works out because Andy tried what is Delaware and wagered everything but a dollar. And uh, so she drops down to a buck. Uh, and Yangshen wins and uh, is our uh, our champion going into Tuesday. Yep. And on Tuesday, we have the contestants Jake Marvin, a banking analyst from Charlotte, North Carolina. Susie Garver, an elementary school teacher originally from Eugene, Oregon. And Yangshen Wang, a public defender from Los Angeles, California, who just won $22,800. We have the Jeopardy round categories. It happened in July. A number between 1 and 100. Animal sounds, with a question mark. A novel death. The third. And stuck in the middle with Q, where Q is exactly in the middle, which comes up in the $600 clue. This word means lateness in loan payments and can lead to another D-E word, default. Jake guessed what is delinquent, but the word is delinquent C which puts the cue exactly in the middle. Right. Am I re- remembering correctly that Susie gave both pronounce, pronunci- pronunciations, pronunciations of uh, Marquis or Marquis? She, she 
did, which actually I think might might be incorrect, um, because usually when it's Marquess, Marquess, like in the British version, I, I'm pretty sure they spell it differently. Hmm. Uh, yeah, Mar- a Marquess. Well, Marquess is like with an E-S-S is right. the feminine, isn't no, it? No, a British nobleman ranking above an earl and below a duke. Oh. So that's my, that was my concern when like, I was like, well, those are two different words. <laughs> like they are spelled differently, but she got Marquis first. And that's like, if we like, I'm okay with her getting it. Cause like, obviously she got it right. But Yeah. My my nine year old was thankfully out of the room at the two hundred dollar level of a novel death. Spoiler for a fifteen year old book: this house elf doesn't make it all the way through the Deathly Hallows. That's Dobby, and like thanks Jeopardy, we're like two hundred pages away from that seat. We haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> um, no, uh, it, it's fine. How? Jeopardy can Jeopardy can give spoilers. They even gave a warning. Yeah, but I mean, like it's on the screen already. Yeah, you have about three seconds to put on earmuffs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it is a 15-year-old book. It is. And, like, there, there's a statute of limitations on spoilers, but also things that are, like, classic works of, like, children, like, like children's literature, I feel a little bit different about spoilers than adult works, for whatever reason. I guess because the... What is it? I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe that's not defensible. Maybe. Maybe because yeah. it's something that you are running into yourself. Yeah. Yeah. When it affects me, it's different. Yes. Um, Daily Double number one is in the a number between one and a hundred category at the six hundred dollar level, and Jake finds it at the nineteenth pick. He has twenty four hundred to Young Shen's thirty four hundred and Susie's eighteen hundred. He makes it a true Daily Double. Uh, nice move and gets the clue: your standard phonograph record until the nineteen fifties. Or the age Diana Ross turned in 2022. He guesses what is 90, but 78 is the correct response. This is not the first time that we've been like, oh, people on Jeopardy seem to really think Diana Ross is like prehistoric. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, not prehistoric, 90, right? Like, they're, they're, this isn't the first time this year even, yeah, I think. It, it was very recent the- that Diana Ross's age was basically a question. Yeah. Jeopardy. Yeah, so 78 is uh, Diana Ross's current age, apparently. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Yangshen is in the lead with 6,400. Susie has 1,000. Jake has 2,200. We have the double Jeopardy categories. A dip in the bay, economics, actresses in the show, 19th century technology, the arts, and tool words and phrases. Tchaikovsky regarded his 1812 overture as completely without artistic merit. Man, I wish I could write something awesome and then be good enough to be like, yeah, it sucked. Uh-huh. Are you kidding me? I mean... Th- it's a power play. It, uh, I mean, yeah, from from our perspective, yes. But also Tchaikovsky was, like, severely depressed. Mm. He He was, yeah severely depressed throughout most of his life so that is probably a not a not a power play for in his mind as much as like a genuine feeling of nothing i do is good and you know like what's the point oh which well now i'm really sad for him i mean 
he yeah he it's also likely that he was gay and that by itself living in that time would would be hard enough so um yeah he, he yeah he he was dealing with a lot and and his his mental state was not great mm. yeah so that's mm. probably why although still it is a pretty cool thing to be like yeah this thing that gets played all the time meh. I, could, I could do better yeah it's been a long time since i thought about the show that had the actresses lena dunham and zosha mamet but it was girls hmm. young shen knew it yeah good good job man yeah uh, i've never watched girls i i know that it yeah. is a show that exists it, it I, I think it, it's had its moment. You can skip it. Okay. I am happy to do that. There is way more TV in the, in the world than I will ever be able to watch. So Yeah. One time I was at a yoga class and I saw Zosha Bamet walk <gasps> in and I was like, I'm going to put my mat in the very back so that she doesn't see me because that would like, I'm not that good at yoga and that would be embarrassing. And then her mat was right next to mine and I was a... Hot and mess. you became best friends? No. Yes, it was. Yes. And now now Girls is a show about us, just Zosha Mamet and me. No, um, I, yeah, I, uh, my saving grace is that everyone was a, was a hot mess because it was like a, like a heated yoga class. Um, and also that they kept the room very dark. Yeah. Okay. That's nice. But hot. Oh, man. I did. Yeah. I did some hot yoga in college and it was, it was a mistake because uh, like I, I was one That's of like I was one of like two or three men who were there and like normally being in a room full of women who are doing yoga I'm like oh this is nice but it was so hot and I was just like like my my mat was slick with sweat like four uh-huh. minutes into it and I was like oh uh-huh. this is awful and everything's terrible and I hate it yep Yep, I, I I hear that. <laughs> oh goodness. Um. Anyway, that's my social media story. <laughs> nice. As everyone has one, it's nice to hear yours. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, Daily double number two is in a dip in the bay at the two thousand dollar level. It is pick number seven, and Jake finds it. He is at fifty eight hundred. Youngshin is at forty four hundred. Susie is at one thousand, and he wagers thirty five hundred. I like that amount. I mean, as a percentage, honestly, you could have bet it all, but he gets a clue. The Sunshine Skyway Bridge crosses this body of water sheltered in part from the Gulf of Mexico by the Pinellas Peninsula. And he gets it correct with what is Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is... At the $2,000 level of 19th century technology, Yangshen finds this one at the 18th pick. He has 8,800, uh, just behind Jake with 9,300. Um, Susie has a little less than half his total with 4,200. He wagers 3,000 and gets the clue Friedrich Koenig's improvements to this machine, not much changed since the 1450s, included self-inking. And he gets that one correct. It's the printing press. Yeah, um, but that's good for him. Uh, he has been on a bit of a tear, uh, so that gets him into the lead and going into final. Yung Shen is in the lead at 15,800. 
Susie's at 4,600, and Jake is at 12,500. We get the final Jeopardy category, National Historic Sites, and the clue less than 100 yards north of the J. Edgar Hoover building is this notorious location. Uh, Susie wrote, what is the grassy knoll? Uh, wrong city. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, and wagered 45.99, so she drops down to a dollar. Jake wrote, what is Watergate, which is what I thought it was. Yeah, that was my guess also. Um and that is incorrect, and he wagered everything, which is too much here. Yeah. Stay above Susie's double up, in my opinion. Uh, and Young Shen got it correct with what is Ford's Theater? Like, that's mm-hmm. a nice poll. I was, that was, that was very good. Uh, and he wagered 9201, which I believe is a cover bet. And yeah, wins another $25,000. Yeah. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Alicia O'Hare, a social worker from Long Beach, New York, Jen Alfonso Punzalan, a school librarian from San Mateo, California, and Yangshin Wang, a public defender from Los Angeles, California, who at this point has won 47,801. And we have the Jeopardy round categories Geography, Movie, Magic, and Wizardry, Stock Symbols. We recognize the representative from and the state of denial. That's fun. That's a good good play. Yeah. Um, more Harry Potter plot points. <laughs> this one a little bit less spoilery and earlier in the series at the $600 level of movie magic and wizardry. They wanted to know what spell Professor Snape uses to disarm Professor Lockhart in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And it is Expelliarmus. My son was in the room for that one and shouted out the answer. Nice. I didn't realize that the stock symbol for Moderna is mRNA. <laughs> That's pretty great, though. That is pretty great. I mean, it, and it works with the name, too. Like, it's not it's mm-hmm. not like it's a stretch of being like, okay, we get it. Like, it fits the name really well. Yeah. I'm not convinced that GME is an $800 level. Like, it's a, it's a like, you know, fourth row down clue but also like we follow stock trading news in this house Mm -hmm. um but like the gamestop bubble was like was huge a year ago it was it was it was uh water cooler conversation in a way that like other ticker symbols are generally not sure i did not discuss the stock symbol with anybody that i knew okay I did talk about GameStop, but I did not yeah. refer to it as okay. GME. All right, fair, fair enough. I I have heard it referred to as GME enough that that felt very obvious to me. Uh, whereas I did not recognize the stock symbol for ExxonMobil. So whoopsie doo. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, why would you take the time to say GME when GameStop is only two syllables? That is a question I don't have an answer to. Uh, anyway, we also had an interesting uh, couple of clues there, and the representative from the $200 clue was Wyoming. This woman starting in 2017, taking the seat her dad had won nearly 40 years before. That's Liz Cheney. And then the $400 clue, Mississippi, Benny Thompson, who chairs a select committee investigating the events of this date in 2021. That is January 6th. A bit topical there, Jeopardy writers. Indeed, pretty topical. 
but we get the first daily double in the geography category at the $1,000 level. Uh, pick number 11, Jen finds it. She is at 1,000. Youngshane is at 2,400. Alicia is at 1,800. She wagers all 1,000 and gets the clue. Afrikaner Gert Alberts was the leader of a famous crossing of this desert in the 1870s, and she guessed what is the Sahara but you got to remember the Afrikaners are from the south and go farther south to the Kalahari. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time picking if it was that or the Namib, but that might be a bit mm. too specialized. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Young Shen is at 6,400, Jen is at 600, and Alicia is at 8,600. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, historical hodgepodge, literary doctors, billboard number one lyrics, examine the science, in the courtroom, and A before E. A and E are in quotation marks, so all responses have the A-E letter pair. Mm-hmm. Given Yongshan's work as a public defender, uh, the other contestants did pretty well in the in the courtroom category. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, because the buzzer. Right. Uh, yeah. And they were all f- pretty gettable. Yeah, they were, they were very accessible. Very, yeah. And that young Shen missed the sidebar clue, the $1,600 level. Mm-hmm. He wasn't able to come up with it. That's pretty funny. Yeah. This is me purposely not mentioning the $2,000 clue of historical hodgepodge. The mausoleum <laughs> of Halicarnassus? Yeah, that, one, that yeah. one. I'm not mentioning it right now. Yep. Let's, let's just leave that one alone. I, I knew it this time. <laughs> this time I knew it. <laughs> uh, could have been a very different life. <laughs> Hey, hey, yeah. Sort of. <laughs> we still might be making the podcast. Yeah, yeah, we might, we might, yeah. Oh. And at the top of that historical hodgepodge category, Abyssinia is the old name for this African country. That's Ethiopia again. Always, always. We will talk about Ethiopia. <laughs> Got to mention it, I guess. Hmm. All right. Daily Double number two is in the Literary Doctors category at the $2,000 level, and Alicia finds it at the 12th pick. Uh, she has 12600 at this point to Youngshan's 8000 and Jen's 200 um, She wagers 4000 which is, I, I think, a great wager mm-hmm. in this situation, mm-hmm. right? Um, if she gets it right, she will have uh, more than double second place's score if she misses she'll still be in the lead yeah. um uh her clue is this german doctor's novel dr faustus reimagines the doc as a 20th century composer uh and she tries who is goethe um but thomas mann yeah man mann, mann. yeah yeah uh, Oof. is the correct response here i've never heard of yeah that. i thought that was pretty I, tough yeah I, I don't know that I would have gotten it, and I think I would probably have done, like, a German Faustus, like, Goethe Pavlov. Right, yeah. Um, uh, before recognizing that <laughs> Goethe probably- 20th century is going to be a problem for you there. Yeah, Goethe probably didn't <laughs> set him as a 20th century composer. It is, it's, a, it's a sci-fi futuristic mm-hmm. thing. Bef- I'm not sure if you were aware of yes, that. Yes, before sci-fi existed, yes. <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> um, before Mary Shelley invented sci-fi. Yes. But I, was, I was just trying to place Goethe in the timeline. And uh, 
try and figure out whether whether it was uh, whether it was in fact before Frankenstein. The subject of everyone's favorite, well, actually, my favorite, well, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure Goethe was. Uh, yeah, pretty sure Goethe was in the was in the 18th century. Yeah, yeah, yes, late late 18th century. Uh, yeah, you were you were right. You had it. Nice. Uh, and Daily Double number three is in the historical hodgepodge category, but at the twelve hundred dollar level, pick number twenty five. Young Shen finds it. Uh, he is at thirteen thousand six hundred. Jen is at three thousand, and Alicia is at thirteen thousand eight hundred, just two hundred ahead. Uh, he wagers four thousand. Not a bad wager. Yeah, it's fine. Gets the clue. Thomas Cranmer, who held this religious post from fifteen thirty three to fifteen fifty six, was the first Protestant in the job. And he gets it right with what is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Says he should have wagered more. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Young Shen is in the lead with 19,200. Alicia's right behind him with 18,200. Jen is at 3,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, agriculture. And the clue, being brought to the U.S. by a ship docking at San Francisco in 1851, helped lead to it now being a major crop in the Midwest. Everyone got this one correct. Uh, Jen has what are soybeans? She's wagered zero. Alicia has what are soybeans? She, she first wrote what is and then crossed it out. She's wagered 6,200, bringing her up to 24,400. Young Shen has what is soybean? And he wagered 17,201. Uh, that's a big wager, uh, but that's what he needed to do because, you know, when you're when the person in second place has eighteen thousand two hundred, you gotta you gotta go pretty big, mm-hmm. um, you know, just a thousand behind him. So uh, that gives him thirty six thousand four hundred one dollars and the win. I thought that was an interesting final Jeopardy clue. Yeah, yeah, it was. Not something I knew, but you could kind of suss it out. Yeah, which I like. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Brian Ahern, a user support associate from Daly City, California, Heather Brown, a civil servant from South Berwick, Maine, and Yangshen Wang, a public defender from Los Angeles, California, whose three-day total is now $84,202. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, which New York City borough, blank and blank, salad dressing for success, Hemingway, rhyme zone, and from the speedway. How'd you do in the New York City borough? I did not know which one was most populous. Oh. I guessed Queens. Brooklyn is the most populous borough. Indeed. Did you know that Brooklyn was the most populous borough? Is that like a thing that is known? Uh, No, not Um, necessarily. I did not know that, but... Yeah. The other four I got, I was wondering whether they would do one clue per borough or whether they would... You know, fake us out and repeat one. But they did. They did do one clue per borough, but nobody could remember what What the the fifth fifth one was. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, we we went right down these in order as the first five clues. Uh, $200 level. um, It's Manhattan that is home to the New York Stock Exchange. The 400 was about the most populous borough. That's Brooklyn. The 600 was where... Can you see the Unisphere in Flushing Meadows Corona Park, which was built for the 1964 World's Fair? The 1964 World's Fair was in Queens, which I'm sure everyone remembers from my deep dive on all of the World's Fairs. That's definitely what I remember it from and definitely not from Men in Black. 
That's what I thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> the $800 level uh, asked about which borough is 14 miles long and has only about 5% of New York City's population. That's Staten Island. Um, Brian knew that one. Anyway, the $1,000 level is the location of Pelham Bay Park, which is more than three times larger than Central Park. That's the Bronx. Nobody tried it. I think, yeah, either either they were worried about a fake out or they just couldn't remember what the fifth borough was. Yeah, which is fair, which is fair. Like I wouldn't, I would be worried too. I'd be like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this is the Bronx. Do I just guess the Bronx or is that, is that the trick? Yeah. We also had a triple stumper in the From the Speedway category at the $600 level. Uh, Jimmy was presenting, and this is apparently his last game as a member of the Clue Crew before he becomes stage manager, Mm. which is big Jeopardy news. Jimmy's awesome. Jimmy is awesome. He's I'm a big fan. I I don't remember if I said it on the podcast, but I was was confident that he was in line to uh, follow Alex Trebek as host of the show. Uh Uh-huh. Yep, and I thought I th- I still think he would do a great job if he got agreed the, if he was given the reins. Anyway, no doubt. Uh, the clue was the era of one company sponsorship for the championship of NASCAR began with this tobacco brand in 1971. Young Shen guessed what's Marlboro. Uh, Heather guessed what is Camel, because they're just guessing tobacco brands. But uh, if they'd grown up in my house where NASCAR was a common viewing thing on Sundays, they would know that's the Winston Cup. Mm. Which I did not know was a tobacco company for most of my life. Uh, I just thought huh. I just thought the the cup for you know like huh. ho- hockey has the Stanley Cup, and I was like, well, NASCAR has the Winston Cup. That's a dude's name. Uh-huh. So, and then they changed sponsorship and became the Sprint Cup and whatever. And I was like, and then I learned that Winston was a cigarette company. I was like, oh, mm. never mind that. <laughs> yeah. Daily Double number one is in the Hemingway category. We're big fans of Hemingway here on this <laughs> podcast. I, I, I don't mind Hemingway. He's just, fine. I He's just, fine. Yeah. I just did not like Farewell to Arms at mm. all. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's in the Hemingway category at, at the $400 level, and Brian finds it at the 23rd pick. He has 4,600 to Yang Shen's 2,600 and Heather's 3,000. He makes it a true daily double. It's a bold move. I like it. Mm. And he gets the clue. Hemingway bought his longtime home in Cuba from the sale of film rights to this novel set during the Spanish Civil War. And he gets it right. It is For Whom the Bell Tolls. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Brian's in a solid lead with 10,600. Heather's at 3,600. Yang Shen's at 2,000. And we have the Double Jeopardy category's next leader in line, four-letter acronyms, Such Great Chemistry, The Scarf, Old Newspapers, and Geography with G in quotation marks. Where we start right off with a clue about the Street of Gibraltar. Yeah. I did a deep dive on that topic. You did. A while ago. did indeed. For a while, I was keeping track of how many Jeopardy clues can you get correct just by having all the lyrics of Hamilton memorized (laughs) and like add another tally mark for the $1,600 level of old newspapers. This founding father founded the New York Post in 1801 to promote the Federalist Party. It's like the... The Adams administration is the song, right? How does the uh, founder of the New York Post ardently abuse his cabinet post? 
uh, destroy his reputation. Um, anyway, Alexander Hamilton is the is the response there. So that's another one. Yet more proof that it was not a waste of my time <laughs> to memorize every word of that show. Oh no. Uh, hey, did you enjoy it? I did. I did. I didn't do it on purpose. Yeah. I just, if you enjoyed it, then it wasn't a waste of time. Yeah. The, the 2022 Oscars sort of came and went without me noticing somehow. I yep. I did not... I, I had not heard of the film that won Best Picture. And that's like... That is embarrassing. Yeah. It's a good movie. Um, Child of Deaf Adults is what yeah, CODA, CODA stands for. Yeah. I am... Um, I will I will watch it now that I've been <laughs> made aware it that it exists. Yep. Uh, I used to make a big point of seeing all the Oscar nominees. <laughs> I made a point of wanting to. <laughs> <laughs> Never got around to it any year though. Every every year I intended to, and then I was like and then and then I ran out of time and I was like, well, whatever. Yeah. Back before kids, um uh the movie theaters used to do like a big movie marathon of all the Oscar nominees and you could get like one ticket for like, I don't know, like 40 bucks or something. And then like, just go and watch movies from like 10 AM to midnight, um, which is intense. It helps if you've seen one of the ones that's showing in the middle. Yeah. Um, That was also before they expanded the number of best picture nominations. Yeah. Now it's hard. It's 10 movies. It's a lot. They still run the marathon, but like, I don't think I ever was at a point in my life where I would want to go to a 24-hour movie marathon at a movie theater, and I'm certainly not now. Yeah, really. Daily Double number two is in the Such Great Chemistry category at the $1,600 level. Uh, Youngsheng finds it. He is at $2,400. Heather's at $2,800. And Brian is way out at $11,800. And uh, he wagers everything but a dollar, which... Mm. Now the numbers are going to be all messed up. Just bet the dollar. It's not going to do you any good. Unless you're... I, he must have been talking with the the dollar at the end of Matamodio's score. If you've seen that Twitter account. <laughs> I vaguely remember it now. Um, yeah, I mean, like, everything but a dollar. If it's, like, the last question of the round and you really want to just be up there for final, I would get it. But, but it's pick number five. He's got lots yeah, of money on the board. Yeah, you've got 25 clues still on the board. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he gets the clue. Rubber is made up of these chain-like molecules with a name from Greek meaning having many parts. And he gets it correct with what are polymers. And Daily Double number three is in the next leader in line category at the $1,600 level. And Yangshen finds this one as well. This time it's the 15th pick. He has seventy five ninety nine to Heather's fifty two hundred and Brian's eleven thousand eight hundred. This time he wagers forty five hundred, and gets the clue: Habsburg dynasty, Joseph the First, Charles the Sixth, her, and he gets it correct with who is Maria Theresa. Yes. Uh, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Youngsheng is at twenty two thousand ninety nine. Heather's at forty eight hundred, and Brian is at thirteen thousand four hundred. We get the final Jeopardy category, literary characters on screen. And the clue, per Guinness, this character who debuted in 1887 is the most portrayed human literary character in film and television. Heather wrote, who is Scrooge, which I thought was a... a I thought that was a great guess. Yeah, great guess. It's a bit late, 1887, for for Scrooge. 
Um, and but- um, I guess the other thing is like on screen made me think movies and TV shows. Was that mentioned in the clue? It was oh, mentioned yeah, in film, the clue, film yeah. and television. Yes. Yeah. And Scrooge, like. You got movies, but. Yeah. Not, not a whole lot of TV for Ebenezer Scrooge, I yeah. think. But not a bad guess. She wagered 4,800, so she drops to zero. Uh, Brian got it correct with who is Sherlock Holmes. Apparently has been depicted over 250 times by more than 75 actors. And he bet everything, which, I mean, yeah, I guess. You got to decide if you want to bet big to try and... Yeah, I mean, you got to bet big because Young Shen's so far ahead. Yeah. And Young Shen wrote, who is Zorro? That is incorrect, as we know. So uh, he drops to seventeen one ninety nine, and Brian is our winner. Yes, indeed. And you know, I just I just went to the Wikipedia page for Ebenezer Scrooge, and it's a lot of portrayals. Mm-hmm. It's a lot, and like every time some random sitcom or like you know afternoon cartoon show does like a does like a a christmas carol parody yep then there's a then there's a scrooge i'm not going to count them right now on the podcast but <laughs> but there are a lot it's a lot it's a lot some of these are radio and stage it's not splitting them out by like by medium mm-hmm. but yeah Joe Alasky as Daffy Duck in Bah Humduck, A Looney Tunes Christmas, 2006. All the ones that you would think of. Of course, the canonical portrayal uh, by Michael Caine in The Muppet Christmas Carol, the true and only the rendition. The one-time <laughs> future. Screw The absolute best. It's so good. Michael Caine playing Ebenezer Scrooge completely straight with Muppet. It's so yeah, it's good. So good. It's so good. so good. Oh, also, listeners and Kyle, everyone needs to have read this post, which is like Miss Piggy as Mrs. Cratchit's thoughts in the final scenes of a Christmas of a Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, have you seen that? No. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. The thought process of Miss Piggy in the last five minutes of the Muppet Christmas Carol is what you need to Google if you uh, if you don't want to go searching for the link that I will try to remember to post on the social the, on the podcast social media after this episode goes live. So on Friday we have the contestants Lee Jonig, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois. Robert Wan, a math professor from Washington, D.C., and Brian Ahern, a user support associate from Daly City, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $26,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Scandinavia, Weather Words, Danger, Danger, Roll Call, Historic Structures, and One Letter Changes Everything. I feel like they recently had a one-letter wordplay category i don't know if it was this week or last week but it seemed similar to something we just had where yeah. you like add a add a letter change a letter whatever mm-hmm. so but it was, it was it was a fine category yeah um the contestants did fine yeah 
Um, I have a I have a minor quibble with the thousand dollar level of danger danger. Uh, the clue is eating certain fish can be dangerous for pregnant women due to this heavy metal. The FDA calls out king mackerel and swordfish. Um, Brian guessed what is lead. That wasn't correct. Robert got it with mercury. Um, and this is this is maybe a little too persnickety. High mercury fish isn't dangerous to the pregnant woman. It is dangerous. Presumably it is to dangerous fetus. to the fetus. Yeah. Um, it, you know, like not ideal for like, I think brain development is the concern. Um, yeah. And I feel like that is an important distinction. I agree. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I liked seeing the um, mention of uh, Billund, Denmark, the home of this toy company at the mm. $600 level of Scandinavia. That's where that's where Lego is headquartered. Yeah, Robert got the, the I had no I did not know that it was Billund, but yeah. I was also like I know it's Danish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lego Lego is Danish, I guess. Is I I didn't know Billund either, but like, you know, Danish toy company, that's going to be Lego. Yeah, for sure. There may be others. I'm sure there are others. Surely there are there are other companies <laughs> in Denmark that make toys. Um, but Lego is kind of the one to know. Yeah. It was uh, wonderfully topical that the writers got a clue in in Roll Call at the $800 level. In this film, Jared Leto plays the title biochemist who tries to cure himself of a rare disease but infects himself with vampirism instead. That's Morbius. And uh, have you been following the, the Morbius roller coaster? I haven't. Uh, so it's bad. I haven't seen it, so I can't say for sure what my opinion is. But general consensus is it's a bad movie. Uh, and people made fun of it so much and turned it into such like a joke and a meme online that Sony, who owns that particular like IP within the Marvel universe, uh, thought that there were a lot of people who actually liked it, even though it was just a big old joke. Hmm. And they re-released it in theaters after it initially flopped in theaters. And huh. it flopped again. <laughs> oh, it's it's delicious. It's a it's such a tasty story there on like corporate exec- executives having no idea what they're doing. That's that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, Daily double number one is in the weather words category at the six hundred dollar level. It's only pick number three. Brian finds it. He uh, is the only one with money at this point. He's gotten the uh, gotten the first two clues. Um, he's at 600 and he wagers a thousand, which is exactly right. He gets the clue. A joy story ends with this falling quote upon all the living and the dead. And he gets it correct with what is the snow? (laughs) Makes sense. That's a logical answer there. (laughs) Yeah. I did not. I mean, I think I would have guessed snow, but I didn't, uh, like know the quotation, um, and I think like there's like a there's like a Bible quote about like the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous that like I think could potentially have messed me up. I think I might have gotten to snow, but anyway, is that like a is that a phrase that people know? Did you know that one? I had no idea, but I guessed it because I was like, it's rain or snow. If it's weather words, it's not like yeah. ash. 
you know, probably like, not. Like, yeah. So I was like, probably snow. I don't it know. could it could be some like obscure pre- precipitation. It could be sleet, hail, right. but probably not. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian is at sixty two hundred. Robert is ahead at sixty four hundred, and Lee is at three thousand. We have the double Jeopardy categories: the Cold War era, gone extinct, crossword clues C, the Jacksons five, what is love. And baby, don't hurt me. My six-year-old got the frozen clue correct in what is love. <laughs> nice. Love is an open one of these. Uh, they they mentioned the you know the title of the movie and the characters' names and then the lyrics. Uh, and, and she got it. I was I was proud. Yes. I mean, she obviously like it did not surprise me at all that she. I mean, of course she knew the song, you know, but like that she was paying enough attention and like you know kind of parsed it, it you know soon enough to like to shout it out before the before the contestants did yeah yeah that whole the whole album like the whole the whole movie soundtrack is excellent but i mean that's that's kind of old news i feel like people For frozen like, yeah it is good i like i like frozen i have apparently the unpopular opinion that the music in frozen 2 is better Oh, no, I agree. I think. I think I agree. Um, I think it's just better composed and and just better. Not that it's bad in Frozen 1, but it's just... I think it's just better in Frozen 2. And uh, I I don't know, I've expressed that before and people have been... I think you're right. I've caught flack for it. Yeah. No, Frozen 2... I mean, Frozen 2, it's, like, hard to even say, like, say which one, like, is the song because there are so many bops mm-hmm. uh right like into the unknown i think is the one that that gets the most play but like lost in the woods lost in the is woods so is so good great it's so good and it's clever and it just yeah I, yeah yeah um some things think. never change is like it's so solid very good um yes. Yeah. It, yeah, I agree. It's just good. Yeah. Just so mm-hmm. good. Uh, Daily Double number two uh, comes up super early. It's the second pick of the round in the Cold War era at the $800 level, and Lee finds it. She has 3400 at this point to Brian's 6200 and Robert's 6400 She wagers $3,000. Um, so looking to tie for the lead, I think might be worth going for everything here but you know if holding the 400 back helps her you know feel more comfortable like sure um she gets the clue unearthed decades later a 1950 letter indicates happiness by joseph stalin that the u.s was entangled in this war and she gets it correct with the korean war makes sense 1950 Mm -hmm. yeah uh and daily double number three is in the gone extinct category at the $2,000 level, pick number 10, and Robert finds it. Uh, he is at 12000 Brian is at 6200 Lee is at 9600 and he wagers 2500 I, I think I would have gone to try and extend the lead more. Mm, I mean, yeah. I guess with that wager, you don't drop below, but I'd have, I'd have tried to extend my lead more. Uh, Anyway, he gets a clue. Extinct in the wild today, the Barbary lion is famous for its activity in this Roman structure completed in 80 AD. 
And this is a $2,000 clue. Why is it a $2,000? And he gets it correct with what is the Colosseum? Uh-huh. Name a Roman structure. <laughs> with like, lions fighting With lions, in it. yeah. I mean, come on. I guess they didn't say fighting. But, yeah. Yeah, but what else? Like, what else? Like, <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. the famous Roman... Zoo. Yeah. <laughs> the lion show. Like, yeah. yeah. So, he gets it correct. Yeah. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Robert is in the lead with 23,700. Lee's at 16,000. Brian's at 6,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, science and the Bible. That's a good category. What? Those two things can't coexist. Mm. Mm. (laughs) I felt great about the category, but then I overthought it. And... Oh, yikes. So whoops, whoops. Um, the clue is a 2021 study suggested that an asteroid that struck the Jordan Valley circa 1650 BC gave rise to the story of the city in Genesis 19. Brian tried what is Babel? That's not a that's not a bad guess. Genesis fits. Um, I can't remember what happens to the tower. It just gets knocked down. Like, yeah, like the story is very vague on like how, but it it is it is cast down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you could imagine, you know, like I I, could see that. that Yeah, that that could fit. Um, uh, He wagered sixty two hundred. So that drops him down. Uh, That's everything. Drops him down to zero. Lee started by writing what is the great flood, but then cross it out. She put what is Sodom. Uh, That is correct. Uh, So the story of fire and brimstone from the sky destroying sodom um this this study suggested that there was an asteroid strike that could have uh could have led to uh an understanding that fire and brimstone came from the sky to destroy sodom okay so uh anyway lee lee wagers everything uh that brings her up to thirty-two thousand. um and robert has what is sodom as well um with a cover bet of 8301 to beat Lee by a dollar. Just a dollar. By just a dollar. Um, and and uh, so he wins with 32,001. I thought about Sodom and then I was like, that might be a little controversial for the Jeopardy writers. I don't know. Like, you know. Um, yeah. There, there's no actual reason that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah should be controversial. And I, I would challenge anyone to read the story and be like this is a story about the lgbtq plus community right like no it it is not it's Um, not it's not if you if you read the story you're like wow like there is a lot going wrong here and the idea that we've taken this to be to like be like and that is why two men should not we i'm objecting to my own we here right but like the idea that like that story has been used to draw the conclusion and that's why two men can't marry each other or two women can't marry each other. It's like bonkers in my Absolutely professional wild. opinion. Yes. yes, it is. It's beyond. Uh, like, it is an, in, it is a huge interpretive stretch. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I, I thought, I thought about Sodom and then I was like, but it's Sodom and Gomorrah technically in the story. That, and that's two cities. That, and then yeah. I was, and then I was like, well, you know, like, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Oh, but that doesn't fit with Genesis. I got distracted 
and started, mm. oh, I was in the wrong book of the Bible. Um, wow. Yeah. You call yourself a pastor. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I had the, a similar thought process. I was like, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, you know, from fire and brimstone from the sky. But that's two cities and it's asking for one. And I, I, I turned to my wife because she knows Bible stories better than I do. And I was like, Lot was from Sodom, right? She's like, what? Because <laughs> she was not paying attention. <laughs> she was like, why are you asking me this? Um, but I got there. I, I yeah. think I would have gone with that. So. Yeah. Nice. Well, we'll see Robert back on Monday. And uh, this is the moment in the middle of the show where we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables if you have a couple bucks a month to help us with the ongoing expenses of making this podcast. Uh, we greatly appreciate that. And uh, we don't like to ask for money without highlighting that there are other things in the world that deserve your funds more than our fluffy enjoyable but you know ultimately you know not that important I, I hope it's enjoyable podcast uh <laughs> um and uh we currently um like to uh emphasize abortionfunds.org um as a place where you can direct some of your funds that we care about um but you know the important thing is that you are doing something in the world and um, but if you have if you have the uh, the capacity to support the media you care about, as well as other more important things, um, please feel free to come check out our Patreon. And we've got some content behind the paywall there. And uh, and we're very grateful to all of our Patreon supporters. Um, so thanks. Um, Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I do. OK. Are we talking about aneroid barometers? We're not talking about our aneroid barometers. Are we talking about Nathaniel Hawthorne? No. Are we talking about the Bronx? Oh, that would have been good, but no. Um, so um, this is uh, from the Monday episode, the Double Jeopardy round. Old movies at the $1,200 level. Babyface with a rather unchaste Barbara Stanwyck is a classic of the early 30s films called Pre This Set of Restrictions. Uh, nobody tried that one. It is pre-code. Oh. And uh, I was like, hey, I know a little bit about the Hayes Code, but, um, you know, enough enough to know it's kind of, you know, interesting, interesting stuff. Um, and so I thought I would dig into that a little bit and uh, touch on the pre-code era and like the rise and fall and like the, uh, you know, the... Uh, and contents of the Hayes Code. So that's what we're doing today. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, so the, the clue asked us for pre-code, um, and the code referenced there uh, is known as the Hayes Code, but um, officially the Motion Picture Production Code. You might think that the term pre-code would refer to, like, any time before the introduction of the Hayes Code, which was... Uh, 1930 or 1934 depending on depending we'll we'll get to that um but it's a bit narrower than that specifically um pre-code refers to the immediate the the era immediately before the mm, following the Hayes code became mandatory um from like the adoption the widespread adoption of sound in motion mm -hmm. pictures 
Um, so it's a it's a short-ish era. I encountered some sources that put the beginning of pre-code uh, Hollywood at 1927 when the jazz singer was released. Um, others put it in 1929 where uh, where talkies are becoming really widespread. Others put it in 1930. Um, in any case, 1934 is the end of pre-code Hollywood. Going a little further back, uh, in 1915, uh, we have a... a an important Supreme Court decision, Mutual Film Corporation versus Industrial Commission of Ohio. Uh, So this is a Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court of the United States rules nine to zero uh, that the free speech protection of the Ohio Constitution does not extend to motion pictures. Um, Ohio had a state board that was authorized to review and approve movies before they could be shown in the state. And anyone showing an unapproved film could be arrested this film company um, challenged that and ultimately was unsuccessful. The Supreme Court found that that the movie business was like a was a business um, and did not as such did not have the same freedoms that the press did um, and that therefore it was constitutional for governments to for for governments to censor movies. Throughout the 1920s, we see growing concern about the morality of the film industry Um there is a very high-profile trial of the silent film star Fatty Arbuckle, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, for the rape and manslaughter of actress Virginia Rapp, as well as a number of other scandals. But the, the Fatty Arbuckle trials, the, the kind of one that gets the most attention. There's more and more state and local legislation on film censorship. Um, the problem there is that there's this kind of patchwork of different local standards where, you know, you can show this in this state, but not that state. And, you know, like, it, it gets really complicated. Um, uh, in 1922, the movie studio- studios start to try to um, get the censorship uh, situation under control by getting ahead of it and trying to self-censor and put their own systems in place so that you know, so that the um, so that the censorship is happening earlier in the production process instead of like with finished movies that then have to you know that, to get chopped up. And- yep. So um, they bring in this man, Will H. Hayes. He is a the former Postmaster General, former head of the Republican National Committee. He is um, a, a Presbyterian elder uh, apparently, um, and they bring him in as the president of the motion picture producers and distributors of America uh, to attempt to rehabilitate Hollywood's image. Uh, he introduces a set of recommendations known as the formula in 1924, which are just sort of like guidance um, and uh, asks filmmakers to uh, describe to his office the plots of the pictures they are planning. Um, from what I can gather, this is really just very loose kind of gentle guidance, not binding in any way. He's really meaning more to advise. In 1927, the uh, motion picture producers and distributors of America passes a resolution uh, codifying a list known as the don'ts and be carefuls. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh, Colloquially known as the Magna Carta, um, many of these would later become key points in the Hayes Code. So there are 11 don'ts 
Uh, they are pointed profanity by either title or lip. Uh, and there's a list of words to avoid God, Lord, Jesus, and Christ, unless they are used reverently in connection with proper religious ceremonies. Hell, S-O-B, damn God, but G-A-W-D, and then and every other profane and vulgar expression, however it may be spelled, uh, is number one. Uh, licentious or sug suggestive nudity, in fact, or in silhouette, illegal traffic in drugs, any inference of sex perversion, <laughs> white slavery. Cool. So that's great. Miscegenation. Uh, so yikes. Um, they phrase th number seven is phrased as sex hygiene and venereal diseases, it, okay. sexual activity. Um, yeah. Scenes of actual childbirth, children's sex organs, ridicule of the clergy, and willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. Those are the don'ts. Hmm. Uh, you may notice um, homosexual like orientation activity, like whatever, is not referenced explicitly but that's the that is what is understood widely at that time by any inference of sex perversion right uh so anyway this whole thing is going to be this problematic in that there are things that are considered not offensive that maybe should be and things that are cons that were considered offensive at that time that we understand should not be uh by our standards um anyway uh yeah. and then the I won't read you all 25 be carefuls, um, but let me let me pull out a few of them. Um, use of the flag is a be careful torture, hmm. uh, which is phrased as third degree methods. Uh, there are a number of them that are kind of focused on like if you're showing exactly how one goes about committing a crime, that's a be careful. Um, you know, which that, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. Um, sympathy for criminals is a be careful there's a bunch of a bunch of kind of uh sexual things excessive or lustful kissing particularly when one character or the other uh, is a heavy um in the criminal sense uh oh. yes criminals huh. are not allowed to love criminals yes not on the screen anyway yeah. um so so this was more formal guidance, but not actually really enforceable. In 1929, a Catholic layman by the name of Martin Quigley uh, and a Jesuit priest, uh, Father Daniel A. Lord, um, created a code of standards and submitted it to the studios. Um, uh, particularly, they're concerned about the effects of sound film on children. And uh, in February 1930, several studio heads um, meet with the two of them. Um, and after some revisions, agree to the stipulations of the code. Uh, one of the main motivating factors here is that they're they're continuing to try to uh, avoid or cut back on government intervention and to, to self-regulate. So uh, the Studio Relations Committee uh, becomes responsible for supervising film production and advising the studios when changes or cuts are required headed by Colonel Jason S. Joy. He's a former American Red Cross executive secretary. Uh, secretary. And on March 31, the um, MPPDA, I'm going to stop saying that whole, uh, the whole mm -hmm. name of the organization, agrees to uh, abide by the code. The code had two parts. Uh, the first was a set of general principles, which prohibited a picture from lowering the moral standards of those who see it. 
It called for depictions of the correct standards of life um, and forbade a picture to show any sort of ridicule towards a law or create sympathy for its violation. Uh Um, And the second part was a set of particular applications listing particular things that could not be depicted. On February 19th, 1930, uh, the periodical Variety published the entire content of the code and predicted that state film censorship boards would soon become obsolete. Um, However, the people in charge of enforcing the code, uh, Jason Joy and his successor, Dr. James Wingate, um, were not super effective or like uh, dedicated in their in their work. And this is this is kind of when we're right in the middle of like pre-code Hollywood. Uh, Jason Joy is supposed to be reviewing uh, 500 films a year with like a pretty small staff and very limited power to actually enforce any films that are not approved by his committee can be appealed to to an appeals board that is made up of studio executives. So, um, yeah. So uh, anything he doesn't approve basically gets approved on appeal. And so, uh, you know, people are kind of flouting the code left and right. In 1931, the Hollywood reporter mocks the code and quotes an anonymous screenwriter saying, the Hayes Hayes moral code is not even a joke anymore. It's just a memory. 1930 to 34, um, is like the height of pre-code Hollywood. Um, the clue mentioned the movie Babyface, which comes up a lot as kind of a quintessential example of a pre-code film uh, directed by Alfred E. Green, starring Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, Babyface portrays an attractive young woman who uses sex and seduction to like, you know, kind of sleep her way to the top, advance her social and financial status. It was marketed with the salacious tagline, she had it and made it pay. After its initial limited release, the Hayes office recommended that the film be pulled from distribution entirely. Um, Correspondence took place about ways to make the film more acceptable. Um, And then what they ended up doing was altering the ending to one where the protagonist loses everything and returns to her roots in her hometown, uh, which is then supposed to show that her, you know, <laughs> the, the her uh, immoral lifestyle. Yes, yeah. Uh, you just, you just, you just slap an ending on there. That's like, but that was very bad. So she, she stopped and she was sorry. <laughs> the New York state censorship board rejected the film's original version. Um, they made, they made those changes and, uh, cut some of the sexually suggestive shots and then it, it passed as in the res- revised version and had a successful release. Um, the uncensored version was lost until 2004, but uh, resurfaced at a library of Congress film vault in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, so that's a, that's a fun fact. I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1933, 34, we see the code really kind of go into effect. Um, there's a campaign headed by Catholic activists, uh, the Catholic Legion of Decency, later renamed the National Legion of Decency, is headed by Reverend John T. McNicholas and uh, was established to uh, hold like decency standards and and like announce boycotts of films that they deemed offensive. Uh, they created a rating system for films that started at harmless and ended at condemned, uh, with the latter denoting a film that it was a sin to watch. <laughs> So Catholics are kind of in the forefront, but Protestants are on board. Conservative Protestants tended to support much of this crackdown, especially in the South, especially uh, relating to race relations. Yeah. Um, Great. Yeah. The Central Conference of American Rabbis also was, uh, you know, sort of allied with these groups, but with a little bit of uneasiness. 
given like the like the dynamics around Jewish presence in the entertainment industry and awareness that maybe anti-Semitism is inspiring some of the like vitriol toward the film industry. In 1934, the studios reorganized the enforcement procedures of the Hayes Code, uh, giving Hayes and the recently appointed Joseph I. Breen, uh, head of the new Production Code Administration, greater control over censoring films. Uh, The studios agreed to disband their appeals committee and to impose a $25,000 fine for producing, distributing, or exhibiting any film without PCA, uh, Production Code Administration, approval. Hayes had originally hired Breen uh, in 1930 to handle a production code publicity, uh, but ultimately Hayes became more of a functionary and Breen became kind of the face of the PCA and like the, you know, enforcement of the code. Um, Under his leadership, which lasted until his retirement in 1954, um, enforcement of the production code became notoriously rigid. Betty Boop uh, had to uh, change from being a flapper and had to be drawn wearing an old-fashioned housewife skirt. Um, yeah. His, Breen's power to change scripts and scenes angered a lot of uh, Hollywood creatives and moguls. Um, one particular, uh, you know, sort of familiar film he was involved with um, was Casablanca, where um there could not be any explicit reference to Rick and Ilsa having slept together in Paris. Ah. Uh, there couldn't be any m- mention of Captain Renault extorting sexual favors from his supplicants. Um, and uh, films could not, you know, glorify adultery. So uh, that is part of the reason the m- movie ends the way it does. Hmm. Um, which, I mean... I don't know that anybody wants to change the ending of Casablanca. No, yeah. I think it's fine. <laughs> but it's like the creative process was was heavily influenced uh, by mm-hmm. the PCA um, for that and many other films. But Casablanca is kind of a, a super well-known one. The 1934 film Tarzan and His Mate is one of the first kind of major instances of censorship. So that's, that's one to know for trivia purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, Brief nude scenes involving a body double for actress Maureen O'Sullivan were edited out of the master negative of the film. Uh, some things to note in the content of the code. I think I quoted some of the the general principles at the beginning of the code. Uh, correct standards of life. No picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Uh, details about how to commit crimes couldn't be shown. You know, safe cracking and like all of those mm-hmm. things. Uh, there were changes over the years to the code, um, particularly, I thought the ones about uh, drug use and drug trafficking were interesting. Um, the original version uh, said that the the traffic in drugs must never be presented, and then it was changed to, it must not be portrayed in such a way as to sim- stimulate curiosity. And then, like, oh, later a detailed kind of list of do's and don'ts was added about, like, how uh, drug use and drug trafficking could be portrayed specifically Lots of limits on sexual activity. Um, sex per- perversion stays in the code and is understand to apply to homosexuality. The clause that disallows miscegenation um, is is refined to specify between the black and white races. Ah. So, I, yeah, I uh, even though that is more permissive, I guess somehow it seems worse. 
there are some interesting lists of profanity, off-color vocabulary, and slurs that are to be avoided. Uh, there's a there's a provision that the treatment of bedrooms must be governed by good taste and delicacy. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting document to read through. For sure. Uh, yeah. So um, in the 1940s into 1950s, uh, the Hays Code is facing growing challenges. There was a Supreme Court case about the vertical integration of the film industry. And uh, that was found to violate antitrust laws. Um, So studios owned the movie theaters prior to that Mm -hmm. um, and could no longer. That that separated and studios became independent of uh, the theaters became independent of the studios, which means that the studios couldn't stop foreign films from being shown in movie theaters. Foreign films are not governed by the Hays Code. Uh, They are for a little bit still subject potentially to like government censorship boards. But that starts to become an issue. Um, The rise of television is uh, creating more competition in the entertainment industry. Um, And then in May 1952, the Supreme Court overturned its 1915 decision. Uh, In the case, Joseph Burston Incorporated versus Wilson. Uh, Colloquially, this is known as the Miracle Decision um, because it refers to a short film titled The Miracle, which is part of the anthology film La More. So they overturned their previous decision and uh, government censorship of film is no longer considered constitutional at this point. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think there's some there's some nuance there, but this isn't a a Supreme Court deep dive. So um, I'll I'll just leave it there. Right, because I think there's there's some I think there's some later stuff with like, you know, like pornographic or like very sp- sexually explicit material. But like, yeah. if I'm remember remembering correctly. But anyway, by the 1950s, American culture had also changed from you know kind of where it was when the Hays Code was first introduced. Um, a boycott by the National Legion of Decency no longer guaranteed a film's commercial failure. Um, several aspects of the code had sort of lost their taboo. In 1956, areas of the code were rewritten to accept some uh, previously banned subjects, miscegenation, adultery, prostitution. The film Some Like It Hot, uh, released in 1959, did not receive PCA approval, um, but still became a box office hit, which further weakened the authority of the code, as did the success of uh, several films by the director Otto Preminger. And by the late 1960s, uh, enforcement had become basically impossible. The production code was abandoned entirely, um, and its successor came into place, um, the rating system, the film rating Mm. system that Mm. we now know uh, was introduced and went into into effect on November 1st, 1968. And that's kind of, that's that's where we'll leave this. Yeah, so that's that's a little bit about uh, the rise and fall of the Hays Code. The Hays Code. I, uh... There's a lot, there's a lot here. I'm not a, yeah. yeah. When I start to dive into this kind of thing, I I start to realize sort of how much there is to know about like entertainment industry stuff. That's kind of uh, beyond my pay grade, but it was, Mm -hmm. it was fun to learn more about it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. All right. Um, I don't have a theme per se here. I'm taking uh, some of the kind of films that have, come up in the deep dive and like the the films and themes that came up in the deep dive and kind of using those as a jumping off point so um all right so question one i'm trying to i tried to not have too too many um 
things where it was like really a movie question um, and to, to mix it up where I could. All right. Question one. The Jazz Singer, uh, which I mentioned earlier, was the first feature length motion picture with synchronized recorded music score singing and speech. The film focuses on a man torn between his ambitions as a jazz singer and his ties to his family and heritage, centering around the decision he must make between performing on stage or attending the synagogue to sing the Kol Nidre on what Jewish Holy Day of Atonement? Day of Atonement is Yom Kippur. That is correct. Okay. Yeah. I did not Uh, know that was the story of the jazz singer. I've never seen that. Yeah, um, that is the story of the jazz singer. I I glossed over and I didn't highlight in the question that on stage he performs in blackface. So that one hasn't aged super well. Right, Um, he's a minstrel singer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, content warning, I guess, on the jazz singer. Um, But yeah, no, that's, that's, that's that's, that's the central conflict is that his father is a cantor and wants him to be a cantor. And uh, he wants to, you know, be a secular performer. Interesting. Yeah. All right. You're at 10 points. Question two. Will Hayes transitioned into the film industry after resigning from a government position. What scandal in the executive branch of the federal government was Hayes peripherally involved in? I can give you... Uh, I'm guessing from the time period... I mean, yeah, you can give me the hint. I, I, oh, yeah, I was I was going to give you the name of the president. Sure. Uh, and, yeah, uh, it was the, the Harding administration. Yeah, okay. I was going to say Teapot Dome. Yeah, Teapot Dome is correct. Yeah, the Teapot Dome scandal, I still haven't totally gotten my head around it. As far as, like, from what I can understand, it's, like, about, like, there's, like, there's like all these kind of moving moving pieces with like, you know, kind of scheming around like land and money and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oil deposits uh, and contracts and things like that. Yeah. Um, so Hayes was involved in his capacity as uh, Warren G. Harding's campaign manager um, and the, was it the chairman of the RNC or something like that. Um, he received some funds that were like, you know, ill gotten and were part of this whole like, you know, shell game, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and was called to testify before the Senate committee as the scandal was being investigated after he'd um, after he's he'd left the government for uh, the film industry. All right, you're at 10 points. And question number three, the film Gone with the Wind is uh, very discreet about childbirth in deference to the Hayes Code, um, but managed to get an instance of profanity approved by the PCA. What famous eight word line delivered by Clark Gable was permitted because of its fidelity to the novel? Uh, That would be, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That is... Correct. Um, there's like an urban legend that the director like personally paid the fine for like <laughs> profanity. That's that's not correct. There had been like a like a change to the code to a, to kind of allow that for artistic yeah, purposes. To, yeah, um, yeah, to allow profanity for like for specific purposes, like you know, uh, fidelity to like a literary work. Or, you know, like if it was essential for the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn is kind of the most famous example of that. Yeah, you're at 30 points. Um, question 
for the 1952 Miracle Supreme Court decision refers to the film The Miracle, which was directed by Roberto Rossellini. But one of its stars is also a famous director. What Italian director and screenwriter is uh, starred in, in The Miracle, but was but is better known for his directing for works including La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half? I don't know how to say that in Italian. Maybe I should say it in Italian. It's fine. Um, I know precisely one Italian director, and I'm going to say Fellini. That is correct. Nice. Yeah. I. It was weird to see his name come up and then be like, as as the male lead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's like, um, huh. Yeah. All right. Question five. The rating system that replaced the Hayes Code initially used the ratings G, M, R, and X, but that system would be modified over time. The 1984 war film Red Dawn was the first to receive what rating as the system went from four to five options? Can you tell me the year again? Sorry. 1984. Uh, My guess... I have it down to between two. I don't know... Because obviously we still have G, we still have R, we still have X, I guess, and M, whether that became PG or PG-13, but I'm going to guess because the 13 is kind of a qualifier on PG, I'm going to say that it is PG-13. PG-13 is correct. Um, Yeah, and the M had been through kind of a a series of uh, revisions already. It had gone from... Um, M to GP, which stands for parental guidance. I don't really... Um, oh, general audiences, parental guidance was GP. Yeah. And then they okay. and then they changed it to PG and then um, added the PG-13 rating in 1984. After a couple of films that received... PG ratings, um, but were like a little too, like not, not good for kids. Yeah, not so. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is Uh PG, uh, and so is Gremlins. Yeah, Um, they should not be. Yeah, there were kerfuffles about both of those. They they weren't uh, adult enough for to receive R ratings, but like they yeah, that was that was what. Yeah, I'm not going to bring my six year old to Temple of Doom. Yep. All right. Hey, you're at 50 points. Nice. And um, the last category, um, we'll call it nursery rhymes. Oof. I actually don't feel super confident with this. Um, okay. So I'll have 30 points. All right. For 80 points, if you are correct. Earlier in the deep dive, I mentioned the 1959 film Some Like It Hot and its role in the kind of uh, decline of the Hayes Code. Its title originates with an 18th century nursery rhyme. What is the substance that some like hot and some like cold? Oh. Oh my goodness. I can hear part of it. I can hear part of the nursery rhyme. Some also like it in the pot, nine days old. I remember that. <laughs> Is it porridge? I will need you to be more specific. 
I I truly am getting nothing. Um Oh, mm. Peace porridge. It is peace porridge. Oh my nice call. <laughs> I'm like I'm just like rolling through sounds in my head trying to make it fit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um that that was impressive. Thank you. Um yeah. It it is peace porridge. Also uh, there are also um, apparently versions of the nursery rhyme uh, where they say peas pudding, which gross. S- somehow just sounds wrong to me, but yeah. you know, you you learn it the way you learn it. It was it was a uh, a food stuff similar to oatmeal, but made from peas. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that was. That was a that was a great poll. You, you. Uh, you have finished this quiz with eighty points. Congratulations! Thank you. Feels You're good. welcome. Yeah, um, and uh, and thank you, listeners, um, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you'd be so kind. Um, that will help us with the algorithm. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are Jeopardy fans, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy and a deep dive and quiz. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.